This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Before we get into today's program, I just wanted to remind everybody that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and society. And you can also go to theoryofchange.show to get the archives of this program. You can get all of the video, audio, and transcripts of the episodes. And my thanks especially to the paid subscribing members. You are making the show possible. And if you can't afford to subscribe right now, I would appreciate it if you could just tell your friends or family or your social media following about particular episodes that you like. That is really helpful. We got to spread word about the program and I need your help to do it. So thank you very much for that. All right. So with that little plug out of the way, let's get into today's program. The term disinformation is most commonly associated with the Internet and social media posters spreading conspiracy theories. But when you really think about it, disinformation is actually just lying at an industrial scale. While various authoritarian governments have always used lying and propaganda, history is crystal clear that the modern tactics of lying at an industrial scale were invented in the mid-20th century by American tobacco companies desperate to stave off federal regulation of their disease-causing products. This is a history that's worth exploring because all of the disinformation techniques that Big Tobacco invented were subsequently adopted by fossil fuel companies to fight public accountability. This is a history worth exploring because all of the disinformation techniques established by Big Tobacco have been subsequently adopted by fossil fuel companies to stave off regulation of their industry and then further adopted by the Republican Party at large and finally by Donald Trump himself into an entire political identity politics. And joining me today to talk about the history of disinformation at industrial scale and the tobacco industry is Matthew Rocha. He is a climate change journalist at Salon.com. Thanks for being here today, Matthew. Thank you for having me, Matthew. All right. Well, so let's, I think, the history, the, the history that we're going to be talking about here today, I think, is a bit unfamiliar to a lot of people because advertising is kind of boring to everybody. I think to the extent people know about advertising in the 20th century, they think of and Andy Warhol, and that's about it. But there's a lot more there. And Mad Men only scratched the surface, I'm afraid. <laughs> I would say if you're talking about big tobacco, you have to start in the early 1960s when... President John Kennedy was elected on what he described as a new frontier platform, and he appointed Mm -hmm. people to positions of power that were idealistic and believed in an activist version of government. One of those people was the Surgeon General, Luther Terry, and he became concerned about tobacco products in 1964, and in 1965, because of his efforts, And because of other investigations that validated his concerns, the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act of 1965 was passed, and it mandated that warning labels had to be attached to cigarette boxes. That should have been the end of it in terms of any pushback to the scientific consensus that cigarettes are linked to lung cancer and other deadly diseases. But tobacco companies wanted to maximize their profits So in the 1970s, they launched a campaign called Operation Berkshire. Operation Berkshire 
manufactured doubt. And that is a term that anyone who wants to study disinformation should familiarize themselves with. Manufactured doubt. They made it seem as if there were legitimate scientific disagreements about the risks posed by tobacco products, even though that was objectively not the case. They created organizations like the International Committee on Smoking Issues, which later changed its name to the International Tobacco Information Center. They were very, very effective until 1994, when a Democratic congressman from California named Henry Waxman began an investigation of his own he exposed Big Tobacco, and there was a famous hearing on April 16th of that year in which the executives lied under oath when asked if they knew that nicotine was addictive. This is mm-hmm. extremely important because all of these executives were in various ways later forced out of their industry. They suffered legal consequences. And In 1998, 46 states and the four major tobacco companies signed the Master Settlement Agreement, which stipulated that tobacco companies had to pay states $206 billion over 25 years, as well as take steps to reduce youth smoking. That, in terms of the story of big tobacco, is still not the end of it, but that is where this becomes relevant when discussing other political issues, because other interest groups that want to do things which harm the public follow big tobacco's playbook they use the same tactics they manufacture doubt rather than pat rather than even though they seem like they're presenting legitimate arguments these are synthetic positions that exist for the sole purpose of advancing the economic interests of the fossil fuel industry and those who otherwise are financially connected yeah. to it. Well, and so the term manufacturing doubt, let's talk about that a little bit more. What does that mean and and how does it work? And how did it work for Big Tobacco in terms of what they were doing? With Big Tobacco, they paid people, they paid scientists, they paid doctors, they paid activists to claim that the consensus about the dangers posed by nicotine products were either overstated or somehow questionable. And the reality is these arguments did not come about through independent scientific research. These arguments, all of them, were promulgated by organizations that had an agenda. That agenda was to make money for, in this case, tobacco companies. And the public, which is not necessarily scientifically literate, doesn't know that when they read studies, they have to look for things like conflicts of interest, that they have to not just accept that the byline is who that person says they are. They have to do a little digging. They don't necessarily understand even what a lot of this jargon-filled language really means. That makes it easy for bad faith actors to pollute the public dialogue. Yeah. Well, and, and also to do it and to use people who have actual real scientific credentials to deliver disingenuous arguments that some of which may even be true in a limited sense. In other words, that they may address one specific peripheral point 
in regards to a scientific consensus, but it's not in any way essential to it. So in other words, you might say, well, somebody, they might expose someone having fudged on some research, something or committed some plagiarism or something like that and claim, well, see, then this invalidates everything that the entire scientific community has saying about whether it's tobacco and cancer or climate change or whatever. That that's it's and the idea is basically to make it so that you can believe what you want and to destroy the idea of objective truth. Like that's that's what's so ironic about this um, right wing. And I guess in their, their case, they weren't deliberately. It wasn't right wing originally in their case, but it ended up being that way. But, you know, originally what they're trying to do is sort of create an anti-epistemology, if you will, a, a framework in which knowledge is impossible. I agree. I would also add to use, to go back to something you said earlier, they will say something that has an element of truth in it, but present it in a way that intentionally confuses the issue. To use one mm -hmm. example, when you're discussing climate change, the most important thing to know is that the primary cause of greenhouse gas emissions is humanity's use of fossil fuels for purposes like electricity generation and transportation. That is the primary cause of the problem. That doesn't mean that there aren't other factors that contribute to climate change. One factor that deniers like to bring up is volcanic eruptions. I wrote an article mm -hmm. for Salon where I talked to experts about volcanic eruptions. They do, in fact play a role in climate change. But to quote one of my articles, this one is called How Much Are Volcanoes to Blame for Climate Change? And I wrote it last year. Flavio Lenner, an assistant professor of earth and atmospheric sciences at Cornell University, told me volcanoes only emit small amounts of CO2 relative to how much humans emit today. Another possible factor of natural climate change are changes in solar radiation, but its fluctuations are too small to explain current climate change. Plus, it has been trending down since 1950, not up. He then proceeds to list other naturally occurring climate change variables. And indeed, deniers will say, what about solar radiation? What about all of these things that arguably could play a role and in many cases do? All of that can be used to confuse people who aren't familiar with the science and convince them that, well, reducing fossil fuels isn't necessary, eventually eliminating fossil fuels isn't necessary because we'll still have climate change. That is objectively untrue. If humanity follows the path established in the Paris Climate Accords, we will eventually see a, a, a improvement in this area. And that's what that's the point that I was making. Yeah, yeah. And but to that, speaking of sort of remedies that are proposed to mitigate crises discovered by science, part of the you, you mentioned the the plan that they had set up called Operation Berkshire. One of the things that they did later. Well, I guess let's let's go back to that. And actually, maybe secondhand smoking is, is how we can do it. Because, because I mean, essentially there were, I, I, there were kind of three phases, if you will, in terms of regulation of big tobacco. One was first, the first one was with children. And, and then the second one was with just establishing the link of cancer 
in publicly disclosing that. And then the third one was secondhand smoke. And that was kind of the last domino that fell. So I'm just the, the reason why I want to focus on this a bit more and unpack it is that I, I, I'm tr- we're, I want to get into the relationship between the, the commercialized anti-epistemology that we're talking about here and then how how that was then exported into other issues. That's that's basically the intent of 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 the episode. I, I see. I think I see. I mean, my answer to that question would be that the epist- epistemologically, as you put it earlier, it's nihilistic. It's the idea that we can't have definitive answers to these questions. And therefore, you may as well just accept the status quo. That, mm-hmm. in the case of big tobacco, caused people to doubt. For Because if in the case of big tobacco, the psychological component of it is if people doubt whether we really know for sure that cigarettes can cause lung cancer, well, Mm -hmm. then I guess I might as well continue smoking. And that same type of logic is applied in other areas. Big tobacco is not the area that I've studied in depth. My area in depth has been climate change. I know Mm -hmm. that the strategies that were applied back in the 1970s after the original implementation of these tobacco regulations have been used by other private companies. This includes fossil Mm -hmm. fuel companies that do not want climate change regulations to be implemented or in some cases even passed. Yeah. Well, and, and, and there is a direct link here because these techniques were, they were pioneered by commercial non-political actors, but the people who came up with them and the companies, the marketing agencies and ad agencies that created them they were also had clients in the in the right wing activist sphere. And and then as the Republican Party, especially under Reagan, became overtly obsessed with dismantling regulations and things like that, this became a natural fit for uh, them. And they and they did, in fact, get together. And there were a number of, of organizations that were being funded by big tobacco, such as Heritage Foundation and a number of other right wing groups that helped the launder some of these messages, especially as we got into the into the 90s and, and 80s. And when when the focus became on curbing secondhand smoking and things like that. And so I guess what what and then, of course, as you mentioned, that they they took those same ideas into the climate change discussion as well. And so it's it's an interesting hack, though, in a sense, though, because everyone wants to think that they are open minded, that they do their own research. Like that's it. That is basically the paradigm that they were trying to tell you uh, that Big Tobacco was using was that do your own research. You can believe what you want. Uh, you have the credibility and expertise to dispute uh, a biologist who has been published in you know, 10 different medical journals more than they do because or, you have common sense. Or, mm-hmm. and I find, because I interact with more climate change deniers than I can shake a tree at. And mm-hmm. the reality is they often will say, well, you have this scientist. What about this scientist? They don't. Mm-hmm. And then when you claim, well, my scientist is objectively correct and your scientist is objectively incorrect, they make you seem like the unreasonable one. How can you claim that the matter is settled? Why are you afraid of new ideas? Why am I not allowed to just ask questions? This is the type yeah. of 
reasoning and on a superficial level that reasoning makes sense on a superficial level yes we should be open to hearing new ideas to being challenged to questioning even our most sacred precepts but there is a burden on the people asking those questions and that burden is to have evidence-based arguments when you have scientists asking questions not based on evidence but because they're paid by special interest groups to manufacture doubt, those arguments are not legitimate and should not be taken seriously. And when they are taken seriously, it makes it harder for the public to have intelligent conversations about these literal life and death issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think it's, it's something that that point that you just made it's something that I think people who have who are politically progressive and, and well informed about issues understand that innately and have a, a generalized and daily appreciation of that fact. But I think it's a point that a lot of people who are not really political or don't pay attention to the news, whatever their political orientation is, it's seems difficult to grasp. And it, it's something that it's related to the idea of this paradigm that, that they're seizing on and manipulating, it also I exists in the news media as well. This, this, the infamous both sides epistemology of journalism, where no matter what the Republicans do or what they say, you have to just portray them as a routine, regular political party. And well, we got to cover what they're saying and put it on there and, and not really fact check it or say anything contrary to it, because that's not our job. Uh, when in fact it is their job and they are attacking you as a journalist every single day. Uh, I would argue you hold your fire. Sorry. I, no, I shouldn't. I was interrupting, but I, I'm very enthusiastic because the point that I make about this in terms of climate change specifically is they, they, they further manipulate people by pointing to the scientific method and arguing that those of us who acknowledge the evidence are somehow being unscientific by insisting that those who deny climate change and deny humanity's role in climate change provide evidence of their own. That is the underlying, the, the bottom line that everyone needs to know in terms of climate change is that if humanity significantly reduces its greenhouse gas emissions, particularly those that are linked to fossil fuels like carbon dioxide, we will be able to prevent a future of intense weather disruptions, heat waves, droughts, food shortages, and other calamities. This is what we're trying to accomplish. It is at its core, a pollution reduction problem. And we're not able to have an intelligent conversation about how to solve that problem because people who are profiting from the status quo are manufacturing doubt, creating doubt not based on evidence, but based on flooding the zone with shit, to use an expression that was coined by someone and I have heard before. It refers to the strategy. It was of just Steve Bannon, actually. Steve Bannon. <laughs> you knew who coined yeah. that. Yes. It's, it's a good expression. I'm actually also thinking, because one of the pivotal points in the history of manufacturing doubt for climate change was in 2003. That was when mm -hmm. President George W. Bush, at Vice President Dick Cheney's urging, 
fired his Environmental Protection Agency head, Christine Todd Whitman. Whitman acknowledged that climate change was real, and although she preferred free market approaches to addressing environmental problems, she was not a science denier. Mm -hmm. Cheney and the fossil fuel industry, of which he was a part through his connection to Halliburton, wanted her gone. And in 2003, when she was removed from power, that was the tipping point at which the mainstream within the Republican Party stopped acknowledging that human activity is causing climate change. Before 2003, Republican presidents were not explicitly anti-science. They preferred more conservative policy approaches to addressing environmental problems, but they didn't challenge the notion that scientific inquiry was in itself important. Now mm -hmm. there are millions of people who distrust climatologists as a group, who distrust geologists as a group, who distrust whole branches of well-established science that is based on centuries of research because philosophically it's incompatible with what they've been told to believe about climate change. That yeah. is a form of mass insanity, is it not? It is. And one of the ways that they do that, and you and you do talk about this. So and just for reference, we're we're this discussion is built around two articles that you wrote for Salon, which will definitely be in the show notes. I encourage everybody to check those out after we're done here. But yeah, the one of the the, the techniques of of creating this thoughtless response in the to, to susceptible people is to create a a false sense of urgency and to lie about mitigation efforts and and they did that in the 90s when 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 people were trying to say look secondhand smoking is is killing people and giving them cancer they they promulgated the idea that well you just want to ban cigarettes entirely and make them illegal and you're going to create this giant massive black market and you're going to create all these crimes and you're going to subsidize the mafia with this and et cetera, et cetera. And, and then they recycled the same thing today with regard to climate change policies to reduce carbon, claiming that it would create communism, that it would destroy the market. And it, it's they're, they're trying to create panic with people who don't really know anything about policy or, or what would entail and the reality is that as the various Green New Deal proposals have demonstrated, these are not anti-capitalist proposals that are being advanced. And in fact, people would be given lots of money <laughs> rather than having their livelihoods taken away because people, because climate change activists understand that you have to make it possible for people to do this. Hey, um, so, yeah, if, if I may, it reminds me of a quote uh, from Dr. Michael E. Mann, a climatologist at the University of Pennsylvania, who I interview frequently. And in my article, the one that we're discussing about Vice President Cheney and his role in creating this movement of misinformation, so to speak, Mann said it was a harbinger of things to come because, of course, after this, the bad faith attack by Republicans on climate science has now metastasized to our entire body politic and to the very notion of fact-based discourse. That yeah. sums it up perfectly. Dick Cheney did not want Christine Todd Whitman as Bush's EPA head because 
her policies would cost fossil fuel companies money. And I do believe that fossil fuel companies are correct about one thing. Eventually, we will need to transition entirely away from use of fossil fuels. If, you, if they do indeed acknowledge that the scientists are right, then they also have to acknowledge that their industry will need to be phased out. But the question, the obvious question is what matters more? Their desire to make as much money as possible doing what they've been doing for decades or the species of the planet needing to survive without the climate being changed by greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Well, and and there and there is another parallel between climate change denial and tobacco and big tobacco's tactics earlier is that both of these industries had privately developed research which showed that they were creating a problem for humanity through their products and they suppressed it and did not release it to the public and can you talk about that parallel if you will absolutely in, in 1994 as i mentioned before there was a famous congressional hearing where seven members the seven dwarfs so to speak of big tobacco were brought to washington to discuss whether their products were addictive and mm -hmm. they lied under oath they perjured themselves it was later proven through investigation that they had commissioned these inquiries their own private studies into their products and knew through that independently financed research that their products mm -hmm. were addictive so when they told congressman henry waxman that they did not think that their product was addictive they were lying this was not a legitimate difference of opinion they were saying something that they knew to be false and today with climate change denial it's the same thing when i wrote that article about big tobacco i was inspired because because fossil fuel executives were appearing in Washington. They were much better prepped than the tobacco executives that were in 1994. The purpose, though, was the same. Did they accept the scientific facts, the fact that oceanographers and biologists and scientists from dozens of disciplines have, through their research, proved that the planet is getting warmer and that the primary cause is greenhouse gas emissions caught due to fossil fuels. And it's very, very difficult, obviously, because that hearing was not watched by most people. Most people weren't paying attention, mm -hmm. having done all of the research, and so that they could call out the lies that were being spoken. But this is, and that's, I guess, where as a journalist, it can be frustrating because I know people personally who are climate change deniers who will talk to me about misinformation they read and act as if that misinformation is as valid as the information that I receive from scientists who spend years in the field conducting research, having it peer reviewed, which means that, and that's what I think a lot of the public doesn't understand is that the peer review process, as long as it's done with integrity, is very rigorous. It is it, you. There is no ideological agenda causing people to say that the Earth is getting warmer. These are scientists who just engage, go out and do the research, bring it back, and then have to have it tested by other scientists to prove mm -hmm. that it is worthy of being published. Well, and they also explicitly are testing alternative methods or alternative explanations for why phenomenon are happening. So 
it is the case that not every single, whether it's insect population or erosion in an area or whatever, like it's not always necessarily going to be because of climate change, whatever these things may be. And But they are testing all of these alternative explanations when they're looking at something to say, well, why are there more of this particular species of grasshopper right now in this area? What's happening? Where did this ha come from? And so they'll go and, you know, propose, oh, well, it's maybe this one, maybe it's this one. And, but the research in many of these cases keeps coming to, well, the climate is changing for these organisms or for whatever the natural phenomenon was. And that's just the reality of it. Like you can, to your, I'm just underscoring your point there. You're, you're hundred percent right with that. And people it's it, but if you don't understand how science works and how it's made, it can seem like it's a conspiracy if you don't understand it. I would also like to quote something. I actually had the privilege of interviewing Christine Todd Whitman for Salon for an article I wrote about centrism. I'll share the link with you. It was called oh, Where Have right. All the Centrists Gone? And she said, those who are yelling the loudest have gotten the microphone, and those are the ones that get the attention of the press. That also succinctly encapsulates part of the problem when it comes to fighting misinformation, is that they are the loudest voices, and they are the voices which have the microphone, in this case, the funding of special interest groups that want their agenda to prevail. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Let me click. The techniques of disinformation, the, the methods of propagating it, the of spreading the idea of anti-epistemology. It's, of course, inherent in Donald Trump's entire shtick and his, especially in regards to his false claims about the 2020 election. And there are millions of, of, of right-leaning people in the United States now that they want to desperately believe that they themselves and their belief system are not linked to Donald Trump and what he's done inside the Republican Party, that they, they think that he did this uniquely and just sort of came out of nowhere and made everyone in the Republican Party insane. But the, as we're, we've been talking about today, like all of this has just built upon each other, that what, once you've established that nothing can be true, that expertise is not real, that academics and scientists are lying to you, then anything is possible. Anything can be true. Any belief can be, you can believe whatever you want. And so that's why to this day, the majority of Republicans now believe that Donald Trump did not lose the 2020 election. And now we've reached the point where they believe that the January 6th Capitol invasion, the only invasion and refusal to concede peaceful transfer of power in American history was somehow not inappropriate. That is the Republican belief. I'm glad that you drew that connection because I think it's not it's not only not a coincidence in one in ways you can understand one better through comprehending the other to understand how people can see footage of these rioters pouring into the capitol footage of ashley babbitt trying violently to murder the vice president of the united states footage of of police officers being abused and somehow they'll just buy what a right-wing media outlet tries to sell them through manipulated edits as an alternative reality. It, it speaks to an almost cravenness, a craven mm -hmm. disregard for the truth. And once you understand that they 
want to not accept reality, it suddenly is a lot easier to comprehend how they can deny thousands of scientists and their research and deny what thousands of politicians, their own elected officials experienced because they want to believe that Donald Trump isn't a would-be despot and they want to believe that they can continue using fossil fuels in the ways that they find pleasurable without it harming the planet and damn anyone who will tell me not to drive to the polls in an SUV on November 2024 and vote for Trump. Yeah. Well, so what are you thinking that are, are for people who are aware of what's going on in this regard, have you given any thought about what can be done to sort of counteract this anti-epistemology? And... I have spent a great deal of time pondering that question because I, like I said, know a lot of people who are right wing. I care about them. I don't think that they are bad people. I just think that they have been misinformed. But pride is a very difficult uh, barrier for most to overcome. And at this point, my I'd say that the goal of most journalists in the climate change field is to just present the scientific reports as they come in as accurately as possible in a way that is accessible so that people who understand the problem are up to date with their information and people who are on the fence or just uninformed can receive accurate information. For the people who already swallowed the misinformation and only crave more, there is no hope. So we just have to create a political coalition large enough that their bad ideas don't lead to bad policies. Yeah, I think that that is, that's probably right, especially because a lot of the the population, just from a, from a age standpoint, I mean, the, the only age group that Donald Trump won in 2020 was people who were, who were 55 and older. I remember right, and uh, we're 65 plus. And so when you get to that age, it's really hard to change your ways. Most people have gotten to that point and feel like they have figured everything out, that they know everything about the world. I mean, there's, there's, it, it is an irony, an unfortunate irony of society that people mock, correctly mock teenagers for thinking they know everything, but they also do not recognize that the elderly don't know everything either. Um, I would also and add, are though, just as prone to being as arrogant and uh, in that regard. I would also add that there are many young people who are aspiring to leadership on the right. People like Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a climate change denier. He is from our generation. He was born in the 1980s, like you and me. But his ideas sound like something that a crotchety old grandpa who watches Fox News 12 <laughs> hours a day would spout. He yeah. is he is a he is an octogenarian climate change denier in the package of a slick young millennial. Yeah. Yeah, and so and and it, there is some some there's there is hope to be derived from the fact though that generation Z in having been faced with the horrible circumstances that the the Trump voting elders have created for them, that they are now voting in self-defense in percentages much higher than any other generation before them. 
my so, yeah. my concern though is when will it be too late because and mm. i i i often joke that i feel like i live in a sci-fi movie but it's an apocalyptic disaster film which is never the genre you would want to live in and <laughs> one of the themes of those films is that there is a countdown and in this case although we don't know exactly where we are in that countdown there is a countdown once temperatures go beyond 1.5 degrees celsius above industrial levels it is going to be much harder to prevent a lot of the climate change related damage that will then occur or at least mitigate its effects there is a threshold that we are close to hitting and mm -hmm. i'm not sure generation z is going to have enough time to turn things around and fix the mistakes that their trump voting elders made i feel horrible mm -hmm. for them all of their anger toward us very justified yeah well, no, that's true. And and I guess, and we were talking before we were recording that I think the other, that re, that reality with both uh, climate change, but also other issues like gun safety and things like that, or police reform, these are all issues that are directly, directly impacting younger people much more than people who are uh, older than them. And the, the, the right wing basically... In in a lot of ways, hum, humans we have kind of been stuck in sort of the controversies, the philosophical controversies of the the early twentieth century, and never gotten past them. Whether it is people refusing to, to believe that human beings evolved, I mean that to this day remains in the United States, unfortunately, a controversial assertion <laughs> in the views of many people. And like, even now, like in states like Oklahoma and others, they, they mandate that textbooks have things in them that say something like, well, evolution is just a theory. It is, it needs, it needs more research to determine where did life originate? And I'm trying to remember what the exact verbiage is, but I'll, 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 find it later but yeah like it's it, it just they they there's this sort of continuing cycle where the right is sort of in, in, advancing Nietzschean nihilism and the American left and population at large never discovered existentialism which is the antidote to it I think that is an excellent point in our pre-recorded conversation I also discussed the politics of aesthetics that is used by fascists where they convince the working class to engage in artistic displays and performances and me me modes of self-expression that are indeed satisfying but that don't in any way substantively address the underlying social and economic problems that have caused their suffering in the first place that is the essence of fascist politics, is to use this and then weaponize it to help right-wing dictators rise to power. That's the formula that they use. I would say what concerns me about the climate change issue specifically is this is one where denying the truth could radically alter the planet itself. To return to what you said about evolution versus creationism, obviously the creationists are just as anti-science as the climate change deniers, but the stakes are lower because the species does not risk being significant, suffering billions <laughs> of deaths and a radical civilization altering series of intense weather occurrences because people don't want to admit that humans evolved from monkeys. The stakes are lower. 
That doesn't mean that yeah. science is any less poor, but the stakes of the misinformation being promulgated are much lower. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I think that is unfortunately one problem with the 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 moment that we live in, where in the past the the false beliefs you there 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 weren't there there was I think early in the earliest stages of human history, if you believe that. Uh, diseases were caused by being unholy or whatever, whatever random thing that could be harmful to you. But then as we sort of achieve some sort of rudimentary medical science, most people seem to get on board with that, right? They, they understood you don't see almost anybody challenging germ theory, for instance, <laughs> or, or things like that. And so the stakes for false scientific beliefs went down drastically because Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster or aliens or Area 51, that didn't affect you in any way, whether you believe that was true. If you believe that the CIA shot JFK even, like that didn't really impact then, your life or the rest you, of the uh, society. But then you have the anti-science rhetoric that emerged during the worst days of the COVID-19 pandemic. People would refuse yeah. to get vaccinated. People would refuse to wear masks. I always focused on the anti-masker ideology because the anti-vaccine ideology, again, anti-scientific, but I under vaccines are complicated enough that I can comprehend how someone might struggle to understand how vaccine platforms Especially actually Especially mRNA work. as well. Yes. Yeah. But by contrast, wearing a mask, it's obvious. That's why when you sneeze, you cover your hand, your nose and mouth because you don't want your snot spraying germs everywhere. It mm -hmm. shouldn't require a PhD in biology or infectious diseases to understand why you should wear a mask to prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses. Yet, a lot of people began arguing that I don't need to wear a mask. A mask, the scientific literature says masks don't even really help. And you shouldn't require scientific literature to tell you that masks help. What does it say about people's ability to comprehend reality? And the answer is most of these anti-maskers are right-wingers. They're part of what one friend of mine refers to as the right-wing griftosphere. And they don't except they, they can be duped into ignoring the evidence before their very eyes about something like wearing a mask to prevent the spreading of respiratory illnesses because their ideological masters tell them to believe that. And yeah. that, that extends to climate change, to the 2020 presidential election, to, any, to yeah. cigarettes and lung cancer, any number of subjects. Yeah, and just on that point, it is interesting that Republicans in the let's say 90s or, or in 2000s were just as likely as democrats to support vaccines actually and so they but they became more radicalized on this point because their media told them to do it they they tell them what to believe and, and while also telling them that they're independent thinkers <laughs> i mean that is the horrible irony of this <laughs> they define an independent thinker as someone it becomes a brand <laughs> it yeah. becomes a brand that is disconnected from the objective meaning of the phrase independent thinker yeah they they became a herd of independent thinkers with all the same ideas <laughs> they did indeed
They did indeed. All right. Well, so it's been a good discussion here today, Matt. Matt, let's, well, we already got up on the screen, so let me say that again. All right. So it's been a great discussion today, and I hope uh, the audience has enjoyed it as well. And for people who want to keep up with you, uh, you are on uh, social media at uh, Matthew Rosha. And for, if you're listening, that's R-O-Z-S-A. Uh, Bye, everyone. And, uh, and I guess they can get you on salon.com as well, right? They can indeed. Okay, awesome. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to seeing this go up. All right, so that is the program today. I appreciate everybody for joining us for the conversation. And you can always get more of this program if you go to theoryofchange.show. You can get the full video, audio, and transcripts of all the episodes. And I also do encourage everybody to visit flux.community. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and society and how they all interact and affect each other. 